Um, well, this is a, uh, uh, are we, is that, is that working okay now? Okay, good. Um, uh, so, I'm uh, uh, delighted to be here to come back to, to um, give a, a lecture at Wilson. Ross, Ross of course, uh, I, I was a, a GB fellow here for uh, many years. Um, and uh, during that time, I've always kind of wanted to give a talk on using this title, or, or ever since I, when I first joined Wolfson, I, I read up on Isaiah Berlin because Isaiah Berlin is sort of the key figure in Wolfson history. Um, and this uh, Two Concerts with Liberty essay of Isaiah Berlin is, has a lot of echoes with the climate issue. And so I'll, I'll explain how it works um, and, and how, how, that, how that link springs to my mind um, in the course of uh, the talk. The key point, which I wanted to... Having looked, been at two of the other lectures, and also John uh, uh, Broom very kindly sent me his text. As a philosopher, of course, uh, he actually had the text of his lecture, so he was able to send it to me. Which, so, of course, most of this talk will be about things I disagree with in John's lecture, because, of course, I had the text, whereas Carl, I, I can't remember everything he said, so I can't disagree as much, but I'll, I'll try. Um, and, uh, uh, and, and what I wanted to ask was really, how do we... Uh, formulate a fair response to the climate issue um, in the absence of reliable climate predictions. So Carl emphasized how difficult it is to make these multi-year projections of global climate. Uh, and John emphasized that you know, climate change can be thought of as this problem of, of justice. Um, and we're faced with this dilemma in the whole climate debate that on the one hand, we're being asked to make a complete restructuring of arguably the most successful industry, certainly the most profitable industry in human history, um, even including some illegal industries, um, and on the basis of what are undoubtedly flawed models. Um, and the alternative scenario is that we perpetuate the current situation, which is the wealthiest very small fraction of 1% of the world's population continuing to profit from an activity um, at the expense of, in a sense, the poorest 20% um, or whatever number you might pull out of the air there. So how can we avoid the problem of uncertainty in what's happening to the climate issue resulting in injustice to those who are being affected by it? That's the sort of basic question we want to ask. And the problem is, you know, on the one hand, we've got um, global expenditure on energy done as a schematic here, so as to give you an idea of the, the volume here. That's, that's, it's you know, 7 or 8% of the total amount of money we spend every year is spent on energy. And most of that is spent on fossil energy. So that's a, that's a big column there. Okay? Even fairly generous estimates of the year-to-year -year cost of the impacts of climate change, that's the cost of both adapting to climate change and... Um, the costs of those things we can't adapt to are a fraction of that amount. And yet these are based on World Bank estimates and Munich Re estimates of, of... I can go into where these numbers come from. But the point is that the current scenario is that somehow we're going to increase our current expenditure on emission taxes and permits, turn, which is currently nil, in effect, turn the entire world economy upside down, and that uh, energy economy upside down, and thereby make these impacts of climate change go away. It's a very implausible scenario. And I'll argue that John, Broom is, uh, John Broom's alternate scenario of 
sort of using offsetting as a way of sort of taking the, drawing the pain out of this uh, may not be realistic either. You know, this is staunchly opposed by many people as an essentially an infringement on their liberty, their liberty to live their lives as they see fit using the fossil fuels that are available to them. And the problem with getting conviction behind um, this overall global climate policy is not just the, the difficulty of the physicist's ability to predict the climate response to greenhouse gases. I would put it to you that even if we solved all the many problems that Carl rightly highlighted uh, with our ability to predict the climate response to rising greenhouse gases, we still wouldn't be all the way there because the public simply doesn't believe our ability to predict anything, certainly not on multi-decade timescales, and they're perfectly reasonable in not doing so. Here's some quotes I've just pulled off the web. Um, only the creation of a world government can, can, impend, can prevent the impending self-destruction of mankind. That's a perfectly reasonable view to hold by a very, very clever person in 1945. Turns out it was wrong. Okay, um, Soviet Union is not now, or nor will it be in the next decade in the throes of a true system crisis. This was by one of the top Sovietologists of the US in the mid well, early 1980s. The use of derivatives, this is a fun one, and more sophisticated approaches to managing, measuring and managing risk are key factors underpinning the greater resilience of our largest financial institutions. That was Alan Greenspan in 2005. Confronted with quotes like that, if an expert comes along and says, we've got to do everything completely differently because of something I think is going to happen in 30 or 40 years' time, it, it really doesn't matter what they're talking about. Very few people are going to take that seriously. And... Even if, therefore, we were to solve the climate prediction problem, it's not clear that we would have solved the climate problem as a result. Um, it's worth pointing out that 30-year energy demand forecasts, which, of course, are you know, the key thing, are, of course, no exception to this rule. And this is the famous um, picture of projections of U.S. energy consumption um, made in the 1970s and where we ended up in 2000. So, I mean, uh, it's... Uh, and, and the bottom line there was not actually a projection, that was just what happened. So it, it was outside uh, the range. And so the, making 30-year predictions is hard um, of anything. And the consequence of this is that the challenge of climate prediction may be even harder than, than Carl suggested. Because we're not just asking people to believe a forecast of climate 2100 for a given scenario of future greenhouse gas concentrations, we're asking them to believe that banning low-energy light bulbs will affect storm risk in Bangladesh. I mean, you've got to believe that whole chain of causation um, in order to buy the need for a particular measure to do so, which is supposedly doing something about climate change. So, um, I'm... Uh, I'd like in this lecture to sort of take a step back from this and ask, you know, is there another way of approaching this? Um, is there another way of approaching the climate issue which would um, be demonstrably fair or fairer than the current situation um, and yet which would um, not depend on this apparently impossible task of making these multi-decade predictions of both the climate system and human system behavior 
uh, throughout the 21st century. John Broom focused very heavily on the fact that on, on framing the climate uh, question as an issue of justice. And that, on that, I completely agree with him. I think the, the, main, um, the main reason people get worked up about climate change is the demonstrable injustice of it, injustice between generations, between individuals within, genera within a generation, you know, between individuals alive today and also between this generation and future ones. Um, but as soon as I mention climate justice, it sort of comes with baggage, and everybody thinks that's immediately a code for um, an immediate rant about environmental imperatives and things we need to do now in order to ensure um, climate justice for the future. Um, this is where we get to the two concepts of liberty problem. There's no question, if you read what people write about climate justice, it is very susceptible to what Isaiah Berlin warned about the notion of positive liberty. The idea that freedom to live in a stable climate very easily slips into a license to impose global emission rationing. Just as Berlin warned that positive liberties, freedom from you know, freedom to have certain things means that you may rapidly slip into um, a, an elite deciding essentially how people should live in order that they have the things that the positive liberties argue they should have. So the real point of this lecture is to ask, is it possible to frame the climate issue in terms of negative liberties? Okay, the, the difficulty with positive liberties is, and the, and, and the sort of the whole rationalist approach to dealing with issues like this, is that it requires somebody to decide what needs to be done and everybody else to agree to implement it. And the difficulty is, who is that somebody? We heard from Thomas um, the difficulties... Um, and the, the, the great progress which has been made, but the enormous difficulties that still exist in pulling some kind of global consensus through on uh, what's happening to the global climate. The whole IPCC process is framed around this. The, um, Thomas was really focused on the working group one, which he's in charge of, the, the, uh, the, the scientists component of IPCC, where arguably um, it's the easiest part of the problem, and, it, and, and it's hard enough in that working group to get consensus between scientists, governments, and everybody else on what's going on. But as soon as we bring in um, the working groups, particularly the working group three, which John Broom is involved in, wh where you're trying to get consensus on what should be done about it or what can be done about climate change, it's even harder to come up with some kind of global agreement. And yet, um, in the absence of a global agreement on what to do about climate change or global consensus about what it's worth doing about climate change or what the price of carbon is, so to speak, most people agree that nothing will be done at all. So, you know, you've got to have this agreement because otherwise nothing will happen. Nobody will do anything. Nobody will do anything voluntarily about climate change. I subscribe to that view. I certainly think the idea, which is apparently gaining ground, that we should just abandon... Um, attempts at a negotiated international agreement in favour of just people doing what they can voluntarily or countries doing what they can voluntarily, 
that seems very strange to me. I think we should be honest if we're abandoning the international agreement in favour of countries simply doing what they can voluntarily, then we're simply saying we're not going to do anything at all because the amount that could be done voluntarily simply out of goodwill on the climate issue is, is irrelevant to the uh, scale of the issue. Could we, is there an alternative to this? Is there an alternative to that global agreement which um, could be framed in terms of what Berlin would approve of uh, negative liberties, and a negative liberty, of, I'm, I'm, there may well be great experts in Berlin in this room, so I sort of need to be careful about uh, where, where I, how, how I gloss this, but as I understand it, negative liberties are you know, freedom from fear of being mugged in the street. That's the kind of thing that, that's the kind of liberty we all want, uh, and it's the kind of liberty that it's the job of government to enforce. Um, and so you could argue that um, leaving your, both the impactors and the impactees in the climate issue, I'll define those words again further in a minute, um, setting for, for, governments, for the governments of the world to agree to a framework which would allow both impactors and impactees to go about their business um, free of the risk that they're imposing intolerable burdens on the other one um, is what governments should be doing. What this means, by the, I, I'm introducing these rather strange words here, by the way, because you don't want to say, I don't just mean emitter, because that tends to lock everybody onto the person who drives the car at the end of the emission chain. And so I, I mean impactor, somebody much, a much more general concept, anybody who voluntarily benefits from the processes that cause climate change. And an impactee, again, you could use the word victim, but that's loaded so I'm calling it an impactee, somebody who's impacted by climate change, um, involuntarily impacted. I stuck the word involuntarily in there, of course, because I don't want to talk about the whole sort of moral hazard problem of people building their houses in floodplains because they think that climate change is going to make them eligible for compensation, um, uh, which, you know, we could get to, um, and uh, I don't want to go there. So, so I'm, I'm uh, talking about the, the involuntary... Um, so you could call them victims, but I'd, I'd rather not use that word because uh, it, it, sounds, uh, it sounds like a loaded idea. So back to this sort of schematic. If you could um, establish the principles which would allow the cost of the impacts of climate change, the cost of adaptation to climate change, and the cost of um, compensation for those who cannot adapt to be incorporated into our expenditure on energy, you would solve the problem and arguably remove the need for all these measures about how to, uh, 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 for, for reducing greenhouse gases. So to sort of see how this could work, um, I'm going to assume, make some simplifying assumptions, drawing on the three lectures you've already heard. Don't worry if you haven't already heard them. I, I'll, I'll cover enough for you to get the flavor anyway. So I'm going to assume that Thomas Stocker's or the IPCC's projections of climate change, the most likely magnitude uh, and impacts of climate change over the coming century, turn out to be correct. But I'm also going to assume that Carl is quite right, that it's a good 30 years before we can be confident that they're going to be correct. And th those are not inconsistent with each other. Nothing, I think, I, well, Carl will have an opportunity to disagree at the end of the lecture, but I don't think anything in Carl's lecture was inconsistent with the possibility that the mid-range projections might turn out to be Correct. Um, as Carl took pains to point out, those who have great confidence that there will be 
no further climate change and that the IPCC's projections are completely wrong are just as inconsistent with the science as those environmentalists who have great confidence that the world is going to end next week. Um, and so, uh, it, it, you know, there's, we can't rule out the possibility that we're going in that direction. So let's work with that. But I will also argue, and this is why I'm, I'm, I'm sorry John's not here to, to, to argue back, but I'm sure somebody can, play, can try and step up to that role, that the contention that we can reduce emissions cheaply just by preventive offsetting is, well, it's correct but irrelevant. Um, it would, might be the, uh, the, the politest way I could put that one. Um, here's why preventive offsetting is irrelevant. Okay? Um, this is the accumulative impact of carbon dioxide, this shows you, in an idealized climate model, but you get broadly the same behavior from more complex models, um, how different emission profiles for carbon dioxide pan out into temperature over the coming century. And the crucial point about this figure is that the areas under the curves on the left are the same, even though emissions in 2020 are very different, and you end up in the same place as far as temperature is concerned, certainly given the uncertainties in the temperature forecast. So the bottom line is, it doesn't matter how fast you emit CO2, what matters is the total amount you emit into the atmosphere over the entire industrial period. And this immediately undermines the whole idea of offsetting. If you put a ton of fossil carbon into the atmosphere and pay somebody to emit carbon somewhat slower by using a fuel-efficient stove or something uh, in, in another country, um, you're trying to equate a, a stock, something which you're putting in the atmosphere and which will stay there forever, with a flow, um, something which, uh, you know, th th you're, you're asking somebody to emit carbon somewhat slower, but the point of this figure is that emitting carbon slower doesn't help. What matters is the total amount you emit. Just spinning it out a bit longer um, doesn't make any difference to the final outcome. And if we look at what this means in terms of the problem as a whole, if we compare the most likely warming you get for a given injection of carbon, total injection of carbon into the atmosphere, um, the injection to date is around half a trillion tons of carbon and rising. That was the little ticker you saw at the beginning of the lecture. And that's, uh, on our best estimate, is that that uh, will cause um, just over uh, a degree of CO2-induced warming. Um, and or probably has, has caused almost that already. We haven't seen all of that warming because some of it is being masked by other agents. If we carry on burning um, all the oil and gas underground, that takes us to around a trillion tons of carbon. Dump that in the atmosphere, that would take us to about two degrees. Um, if we burn all the coal, um, that takes us north of three degrees. And if we burn it all, um, that takes us up into territory where I wouldn't trust any climate model to tell us where the warming would stop. Um, and so this, the point is, until you've, got a, uh, until you've got an offsetting scheme which addresses what's going to happen to all the carbon which we cannot afford to put into the atmosphere at all, ever, um, it's irrelevant to the final um, outcome of uh, climate, the, 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 the final um, climate outcome. So this is the point. Offsetting can't work in the long run, because when you liberate a ton of fossil carbon, it remains in the active carbon cycle forever, in effect. So the only true offsetting... I mean, if this, if, if this were to happen, then I would, be all I would be all for offsetting, but this is not a service anybody's offering at the moment. The only true offsetting is to refossilize carbon. 
i.e. to pump it back out of the atmosphere and back underground again. Uh, you do that, th that's fine. That compensates for the impact of taking the carbon out of the ground. But, but, but the other measures which are being discussed at the moment are, are, um, are, are essentially irrelevant, and therefore not releasing carbon into the atmosphere undoubtedly comes at a cost. Either the opportunity cost of not burning that carbon in the first place um, or the cost of burying the CO2 so generated. There's no way out of that very substantial cost of not causing climate change. And simply saying, well, you know, the sort of a lot of environmentalists look at this kind of talk and say, right, well, the solution is just don't burn the carbon. Try telling this man, uh, with, with apologies, um, that he can't dig up his fossil fuels because the IPCC says so. So this is Charlton Heston saying, you can drag this coal shovel from my cold, dead hands. Um, and, uh, you know, the, the fossil fuel industry um, is, is doing what it's doing. Um, they would have a, back to the sort of positive and negative liberties question, they would have a clear case for their... Um, negative liberties being infringed if a scientific elite were to turn around and just tell them to shut up shop and go home because of a prediction made in a bunch of IPCC climate models. Um, and this is likely to be, indeed it already is, the reaction. So is there an alternative way of framing the problem which allows um, Charlton Heston to continue uh, mining fossil fuels uh, without the injustice of the impacts of that approach, uh, uh, of, of, of the CO2 so generated by the fossil fuel he digs up with that coal shovel um, being imposed on uh, innocent people around the world um, through the impacts of climate change. Well, it's amazing rather a peculiar um, example of an environmental success story to give, but... If you consider the Deepwater Horizon incident, um, not everybody's idea of an environmental success story, but the point is, it, it's not entirely over, but it's largely over. Um, and although a lot of oil was spilt into the Gulf of Mexico, and it did affect uh, a lot of shrimp fishermen, like the chap in the center here, um, he was eligible for compensation, and many of them have received compensation. Uh, and if they weren't able to uh, continue in business at the time, they were able to uh, make a lot of money helping with the cleanup. So it wasn't nearly as bad for them as, for example, the consequences if um, the carbon is simply released into the atmosphere. The point is that BP never for a second questioned that it was liable for the consequences of compensation and cleanup for fossil carbon released onto the floor of the Gulf of Mexico. And yet if you release fossil carbon into the atmosphere... It's everybody's problem and certainly not yours. And that's a puzzle. It doesn't need to be so. Um, so if we were able to identify the impacts of, um, a, 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 the, the consequences of fossil carbon emissions, it opens the possibility um, that we could, although John, John mentioned in his lecture that we don't compensate the uh, those, in, those impacted, the impact, we don't compensate the impactees for the consequences of our emissions, but if we could trace those impacts um, and establish what they are, then that opens the possibility of us doing so. But this then, you know, those of you who heard 
um, Carl's lecture would immediately start to worry um, that you know, I'm talking about tracing the impact of fossil carbon emissions on forest fires in Australia or um, storms in the Arctic threatening to inundate an Arctic village. The Arctic village here is interesting, actually, because they are, in fact, in the process of suing ExxonMobil for the, for, for the um, impact of climate change. Um, so this, this village of Kivalina, is, uh, the case is continuing through the U.S. courts, and I think it's been thrown out once, and it's on appeal, and you know, it's gonna, I'm sure it'll, it'll keep going for a while, I've no doubt. Um, and who knows how it will end up. But the point is, uh, if you heard Carl's lecture, you may be wondering, you know, if we can't predict the climate, how can we say what impact our emissions or past emissions may be having on people today? Well, this is where the conversation with Carl really begins. But, I mean, Carl was talking, as I read it, about the challenge of predicting the evolution of the whole climate system. And the point about the whole climate system is it's very interconnected. You only need to get one thing wrong and your climate forecast can head off in a different direction. As we found um, in the climateprediction.net project, you know, f remarkably fine adjustments to parameters and climate models send them wandering off in a completely different direction um, in the future um, and give you a very different level of global climate change. And since we don't know what any of these parameter values should be, um, that opens a whole can of worms about trying to pin down what the range of forecasts might be. But we can make conditional predictions. You know, if X were to happen, then Y, provided we can be confident that we have a model which just makes the connections between X and Y, just models the processes which connect X and Y, and these can be surprisingly reliable. Um, and I'm keen to show you at least one example of a surprisingly reliable or surprisingly predictable region. Um, some recent uh, uh, results from the Weather at Home project where we're getting people to run uh, climate models around the world, the black dots here are all the people who are running these models for us, uh, which Friederike Otto has been uh, working up um, in the uh, School of Geography here in Oxford. So this is looking at, um, at the Congo region, um, the, the, the rainforest region in the Congo, um, and looking at uh, precipitation in that region. And we found, um, just comparing the model to estimates of what actually happened to rainfall in that region, a very surprising level of predictability, uh, one which uh, both startled us and indeed startled specialists in precipitation in Central Africa. Um, the reason it was startling, you might think this, so, so basically this is the, the model in black, um, the spread of model results in gray, um, and the observations in blue. And you're saying, well, there's an almost uncanny, in fact, it was rather annoying for Friedrika because I kept on asking her to redo this plot because I didn't believe it. Um, and, uh, but we are pretty confident that this is correct um, and that this is indeed how well it's possible, you know, shows how potentially predictable um, precipitation in this region is. Why wasn't everybody aware of this before? Well, an obvious part of the reason is shown by this picture, which shows um, the observation network over Africa, and you'll notice uh, a rather obvious hole um, over the Congo um, for the equally obvious reason when I commented on this to the people at the Tropical uh, Meteorology and, and Forestry uh, Conference, where we, which we did this work for, well, you'd have to be pretty crazy to go and read a rain gauge there. Um, so so the, these are parts of the world that, uh, that where you have to sort of infer what's going on from what's happening elsewhere because it's rather dangerous to go and make direct observations. Um, but if we're, you know, we are increasingly able to do this 
using um, uh, products called, called reanalyses. These are um, methods that are used to sort of propagate data into these data void regions. Um, and, um, you know, this is uh, how Friedrika finds in, this, um, in these many, many simulations of the weather in the Congo, how drought risk in that region may be changing. It's just an example of the kind of question you can ask and the answer you might get, asking how the risks of adverse weather events are changing around the world. This is simply showing you the net change um, in risk that's occurred since the 60s in, uh, in the, the uh, green, uh, intervening decades in black, red, and blue, and then the 2000s in, in dark blue there. So you can see that, you know, just taken alone, that there was a somewhat increased risk. Moving to the left on this plot means a, a lower return time for an event or an increased risk of that event occurring um, of a drought occurring in the Congo during the 2000s. Whether droughts did occur in the Congo during the 2000s, we don't really know because there isn't a huge amount of data there. Um, but the point is that you know, it shows what you could you can start the sort of kind of question you can start to ask. We've been asking more practical questions about questions closer to home as well, but this is a new result, so I wanted to, 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 to show you this one. Um, you know, what, what does this mean for climate policy? Well, if we may not be able to predict the climate of 2050, um, but, or, or 50, years, you know, 50 years in the future, but we can start saying some things with some confidence about how climate change is affecting us today. And the reason we can have confidence in this is that the procedure and the models we use for this are absolutely identical to what we use for seasonal forecasting. You've probably heard talks from, from David Anderson 10, 15 years ago about progress in seasonal forecasting. And the basic method we're talking about here is identical. We look at the world with and without an El Nino, the world with and without human influence on climate, and uh, it opens that, and, and, and we ask, you know, how risks of weather events are changing. This, of course, opens the possibility of the impactors potentially, indeed, compensating the impactees for the consequences of their emissions. Um, and indeed, the numbers at the moment, you know, the numbers we, we can see of weather events that are happening um, are a threshold for potential liability, which has been proposed, is around a factor of two. And a number of weather events that have occurred over the past decade would probably exceed that threshold. Um, I should stress um, that not everybody thinks this is a good idea. Um, Mike Hume, um, in, uh, uh, in uh, writing in The Guardian um, a few months ago, uh, emphasized that he was very concerned that this sort of approach to trying to quantify the impacts of climate change as a way of um, steering resources towards those who are actually being impacted would be a bad idea because it, it could mean that areas where um, the monitoring is poor and the data is poor and the models are poor might miss out. I could see, one can see where Mike's coming from, um, and, but I just wanted to show you one piece of work that we're doing, um, which is sort of um, relates to addressing this problem. Um, where Mike's coming from is that if you look at the projections of climate change, um, this is the projection for the end of the 21st century for rainfall changes in the June, July, August region, which was the uh, season, which is the season I was showing you in Friedrich's plots. Um, that uh, red box there, there's absolutely no agreement across the models about even the sign of the rainfall change in that region. So given that... Um, how could you possibly hope to start saying 
Uh, well, we've seen a drying, so we think that you know, X percent of this drying or, or X percent of the risk of this drought is attributable to human influence on climate. Um, we obviously need to... Now, this, this plot is based on the, the IPCC approach of just throwing lots of models in to a, a, a tub and then looking to see how well they agree with each other. So um, I would argue the problem is not necessarily nearly as bad as it looks on that plot. And indeed, just to... Uh, and, and some of the work, some other work which we're doing uh, in Oxford, um, in the Department of Physics here, um, in collaboration indeed with the um, uh, Oxford Functional Magnetic Resonance Imaging of the Brain Centre, a neuroscience research centre here, um, may actually be helping us understand where the discrepancies between these forecasts come from and how they may not be quite as bad as they look. The key thing is that models disagree on where, it is, where it's raining, how rainfall is going to change in the future. They also disagree on where it's raining now. So this is a, just a map of where rain ought to be in a climate model in July. And in a typical member of the current generation of climate models going into the next IPCC assessment, um, that's the observed, and that's a typical current model. Okay? So you can see you know, the models are raining in the wrong place. Okay? But it doesn't mean they've got everything wrong. They've got features there. You know, they, they, the convergence zones are there. They're just displaced a little bit. And you could argue that what you need to do is start off, before you compare the models to observations, use the techniques which they use in neuroscience when they take a brain scan of somebody and they want to compare it with a brain scan of somebody else. They have to sort of warp one brain to make it look like the other one so that they can make sure that they're comparing the same bits when they're taking a a multi-patient average, okay? So um, well, they're applying, we're, we're applying exactly the same uh, techniques uh, with working with Mark Jenkinson up at the FIMRIP Center on this um, to uh, warping the precipitation fields out of climate models to make them a little bit more like, whoops, the observations. So you can see that's what happens when you apply this image warp and you end up with something which looks much more like the observed, not identical, but still much closer to the observed, to, 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 to the observed um, average precipitation. So that, that's not really achieving anything. It's just showing that you can squeeze one image and make it look like another. Everybody knows you can do that. They can do that to faces. You can even sort of you know, play games on the web with making your face look like um, uh, some cartoon character or whatever, I think. But, um, uh, but where we can, what we can do is uh, play... Uh, is apply the same approach, the same correction to the simulated trends. Okay? So this is taking lots of different models now, looking at their response to rising CO2. That's the raw response. See, it's a bit of a mess, that spaghetti diagram. But then we correct where they're raining today, which, you know, which we, know, we know where it's raining today, apply that to all of them, and suddenly all of the models agree with each other rather well, with the sole exception of the dark blue one, which happens to be the Met Office model who are co-sponsoring this research, which is <laughs> slight embarrassment. But, but they've taken it on the chin, and they said, yeah, okay, you know, it's just not a very good model. They, well, they said, oh, yes, we know why that is, was the reaction. Okay, so where might this lead? If, as a scientific community, we were, instead of devoting so much attention to climate prediction, which, as Carl has pointed out, um, is an almost insuperable task, 
We could focus much more on quantifying who's being affected by climate change today and how they're being affected. And then instead of trying to get agreement on a global emission reduction strategy, we could simply agree on a principle. Um, the principle of upstream liability, the principle that if you dig fossil carbon out of the ground, you are liable for the consequences of the uh, dumping of that carbon into the atmosphere unless you can show that an equivalent amount of fossil carbon or an equivalent amount of CO2 has been buried. Um, a simple principle that governments could agree on, and indeed any government that claimed that there was no impact of, climate of, of digging up fossil carbon could of course agree to this principle because they're agreeing to nothing at all. Because if they're so confident there is no impact, there would be no liability. So it has sort of, it's nice in that respect. You know, you can take your own view on how much climate change matters. And crucially, the, there's, there's no obvious injustice brought on by you simply taking the view uh, that you don't believe the forecasts of climate change. Which brings us back to the sort of issue of justice. The consequence of this, if you were to impose this principle, would be that some fraction of the rents that currently accrue, the, the profits that are made by um, extracting fossil carbon from the ground, uh, would be diverted to compensating those affected by climate change. Um, that's not obviously an unjust outcome. Um, indeed, at the moment, where that money goes is unclear, but most of it sort of washes around the world economy and fuels property booms in London. Um, and so it would indeed make a certain amount of sense for some of that money um, to be diverted to dealing with the costs of climate change. And of course, as those costs of climate change escalate, if they do escalate, um, eventually a time would come where it was cheaper to bury carbon than to deal with the costs of litigation every time a bad weather event happens somewhere in the world and then suddenly the entire problem would go away without the need for any global agreement on how big it was in the first place, which I find an attractive possibility. Thank you.